Welcome. Ruth Ann Rigby, we're glad you're here. I'm so glad to be here. So when was the last time you were at Cumberland Heights? I was here about a year ago. What were you doing? Just visiting. Just hanging out? Mm -hmm. Tell us what you're doing right now. Uh, I'm doing many, many things. I just took a new position with J Flowers Health Institute out of Houston, Texas as their chief strategy officer. Congratulations. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And uh, I'm just uh, just doing what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, helping That's right. people. You're my Mississippi friend. For those that don't know, both Ruth Ann and I, which I had to tell you about this, maybe, I don't know, two years ago or yeah. so. We're both from Mississippi. I'm originally from Starkville, Starkville, as we would say. Stark Vegas. Stark Vegas. Don't they call it Stark Vegas? They do. Yeah. They certainly do. Yeah. And you're outside of Jackson, Mississippi, correct? Yes. yes. That's right. How long have you been there now? I. Um, that's a great question. My husband and I... Um, I lived in the same house I grew up in my entire life until a year and a half ago. Wow. That's and a change. That's yes, a, that's it's a huge change. Huge change. And uh, we, we bought a, a new house about a year and a half ago up north in Canton, Mississippi. And we live out, uh, out on a farm. And uh, it was a whole new world. Whole I new love world. that. Because I'd never packed up a house. I'd never set up a house or anything like that. Did you learn anything new? I mean, what, what was the experience like? It was really interesting because I'm also a stroke survivor. Okay. And I didn't so know that. one of my girlfriends, Marlena, had to come in. I had a lot of my girlfriends helping me pack up. You know, it's good to have friends that are therapists. You know, Ruthann, have you started packing up your house? You may want to consider doing that. I was like, <laughs> do I need to come over there and help you? Yes. And so one of my girlfriends, Costas, she started. She started helping me, and because I was like, I'd never done that before, so I didn't know how to do it. I bet and it was an emotional experience. It to was. Some degree. I threw away so much stuff. Well, let me rephrase that. I donated. I donated. You know, World Book encyclopedias. I mean, like that was the house I grew up in. Of course. So um, it was. It was nostalgic, but it was also very therapeutic Good. to be able to just. Start fresh. fresh. Yeah. And so my girlfriend, Marlena, she um, she owns a great kitchen store back home. And uh, literally, I was traveling so much, and she went in and set up my entire kitchen. So I highly recommend that for people that are buying new houses, get somebody to set up a kitchen <laughs> for you because it works. That's a good friend. <laughs> and so when I came home, um, everything had a Post-it note on it. So until I learned where it was. Perfect. So that's pretty cool. Did your husband like that too? Yes, he did. He did. He, he takes, didn't have to. He, I don't cook. He does. So oh. He's, he's, he Do you clean or does he cook and clean? No, I clean. Got yeah, it. I clean. So that's my that's role. It's a good partnership. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm glad that you guys are in a new space, new yeah. adventure, still yeah. in the same area. Yeah. But just new things. Do you have chickens and goats and pasture ornaments? No, but we're getting ready to. I have we have cows down south on our farm, okay. and uh, so we were going to put. I really want to get some miniature horses, okay, and some miniatures. Uh, I grew up with horses. I could ride before I could walk, and I'm a horse girl. I really? Do, uh, yes, and I showed competitively too. Really? I showed hunter jumpers. I did. I did not know that. Yeah. So tell uh, us about that. Tell us about. So this is where you grew up. Yes. Right. Yes. How, how did you? You've worked in this field for. A long time. A long time. Yeah. So just to be completely transparent, when I came to work at Cumberland Heights about five years ago, I was working in treatment for, I don't know, another five, six years before that as a graduate student. Yeah. 
And so when I came to work here, I heard all about Ruth Ann, Ruth Ann, Ruth Ann. And we got connected probably through conferences yeah. and all that and collaborated in uh, Charleston last year in a conference. And and I have come to really love and admire our relationship and yours to our organization and everything that you've done. We're going to get into some of that, but sure. everything you've done really nationally oh, wow. to support people that are affected families. by addiction and families. Um, so tell us, give us a story a little bit of how you went from a show jumper to a professional in the behavioral health field. What's that story about? Well, that's a great story. Um, You know, I didn't get here the easy way. I call it my other life because this is my recovery life. Uh, March 1, I picked up my 26-year chip, which uh, that's God's grace. Congratulations. um, You know, that's a miracle. And it's a lot of hard work that goes into that, as you know. So um, I grew up um, in Jackson, Mississippi, um, I had a mother who was an alcoholic. So I can remember very young when uh, I was very much affected by her uh, alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she was never present for, um, you know, things that I was doing when I was a child. And um, just because she was so, it was just part of who she was at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother got sober when I was 18. Um, she, um, had 25 years of sobriety when she passed away, probably 16 years ago. Mm. Um, And, you know, she went from being a person that I despised because I was a child of an alcoholic to a person who was my hero, and I absolutely adored her. Mm. And, you know, that's the beautiful gift of recovery. Mm. And when families get into recovery, you know, the whole family can heal. Right. And so... um, you know, that was a very unique experience. But she missed those opportunities with me, um, with my um, showing horses and things like that. She just wasn't—that was my escape, honestly. You know, um, I've always had horses. Uh, when I was a very young child, my mother uh, bought this black pony named John. John. And John. And she went and picked him up in her station wagon. She made them take the seats out and put John in the station wagon. A horse. Yes, it was a pony. Pony, okay, pony, not a horse. Excuse pony. me, pony. Um, and so you know, she just that's that's who she was, and she um, got it done. She got it done no matter what. And um, John was probably uncomfortable. John was fine. Okay. So when my parents would be asleep in the house, I would go out and get my pony and bring him in the house. Oh, I would really? literally bring him into my room. As a child. And I would go take him out before they woke up. Really? Because oh, that yeah. was a no-no. We don't I, want John I in the house. I had great skills as a child. <laughs> wow. And John probably learned to be quiet oh, as yeah. we're walking through. He didn't do through. anything. He didn't poop in the house. He didn't do any of that. Really? Yeah. He just, I just wanted him there with me. And he so. would just hang out with you. Yeah. That's yeah. a cool story. That's And hilarious. I started scuba diving when I was 11. Um, and I became a dive instructor. Um, what? Uh, yeah, I did. You, there's probably a lot of things you don't know about I, me, is, but yeah. it was a, it was another great escape from my house. So my dad would make sure that I was, uh, you know, I was farmed out, I would say. I would go scuba diving every weekend in Florida with the dive team. Well, every, once a month, we would go scuba diving down in Pensacola. And um, that was just a great escape. There's nothing better than being in the water. And we had a pool at our house, and we could swim all year. So there was nothing better to me than going and throwing on my gear and getting on the bottom of my pool, and nobody could find me. Right. And I would just sit there for a long time. But and for those that haven't scuba dived, it's another world. It's a whole other world. It's a it's a 
It's yeah. a, one of the more electric experiences I think you can have. So I became a dive instructor at 18, and then I had a horrible diving accident. Really? Yeah. A group of us who were instructors went down to Pensacola, and we were diving that we were lobstering. And back then, you know, everything's digital now, your tables, everything. You, but back then, you calculated it. Mm. And it was my second dive of the day. I do not remember that dive. I probably never will. Wow. But um, I lost consciousness at about 80 to 100 feet. And the people that were with me were able to get me back up on the boat. But we were so far out that the radio would not reach all the way in. It actually reached another boat um, that actually had two nurses on it. Um, and then they were able to, they had to do CPR on me twice. This is all told to me because I, I don't remember. out. I don't remember. Wow. And, um, and so they, they took me in and then I was put in a helicopter and taken to the Baptist Hospital in Pensacola. And um, I was in, uh, I was there probably for, 12 hours maybe, they got me stable, and then I went to the Navy base and was put in a decompression chamber for 48 hours. Yeah, they put you out. With Navy SEALs. From their dives. I mean, they had a whole medical team. Do you remember that? Oh, I remember bits and pieces of that. Wow. Um, Because now, you know, you go to centers that have the chambers. Right. But I was very lucky to be able to go to the Navy base in Pensacola. That's right. If you would have been somewhere else, it would have been a different situation. It would have been totally different. Wow. Wow. So, you know, my mother would tell you that I've used up nine lives, uh, you know, so I've had, I've, I've had a pretty wild ride. Yeah, it sounds like it. So uh, I want to swing back to your mother and her 25 years mm-hmm. before she passed. Was there a time period that y'all were able to share in recovery together? Oh, yes. Yes. Tell us about yes. that. So h- how long did that happen? And So I got sober um, in 1997. And that was my husband. uh, We had only been married for a very short time. Um, We had been married for six six months, I think. Um, I met my husband on my farm. My husband is a highway patrolman. And uh, that was his second job on my family's farm with my cousin and her family. And uh, I saw this man struggling in a pasture one day. And uh, I stopped, I jumped the fence, I caught the pony, and I gave it back to him, and and I introduced myself, and I got back in my car, I called my mother, and that's back when cell phones were really, really big. Okay. Probably before your time. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and I called my mother, and I said, I've met the man I'm going to marry one day, and I married him four years later. All right. And um, so... I got. Um, I was brutally attacked at a gas station oh on the gosh. way home from work one night. I just stopped to get gas. It was probably two miles from our house, um, and I did not realize. You know, I was just pulling in to get gas, and I was mm. brutally attacked. They tried to kidnap me, and mm. that's when my life forever changed. Um, and nobody would help me there. Mm. Nobody. And so I was able to call my husband, and he and a couple of people came and helped me. And um, so you like broke away from these oh, yeah, attackers. I, I, I fought. I and fought. What you're saying is there was folks maybe around the gas oh, station, or they wouldn't help you at all. Nope. Really? Yep. Wow. And so you know, I grew up with an alcoholic parent, so I have the gene, and I became something I said I never would be. Um, but we did not know about trauma back then. What we know today. And so I was having flashbacks, night terrors, um, 
And so what does one do when that happens? You go to the physician. You go to your doctor. And I would go to the doctor. I have headaches. I'm having this. You know, he would medicate me. I would feel a little bit better. It would numb me up. And um, and so then my visits got more frequent. You know, I was going three times a week. <laughs> and, right. and on Fridays, um, you know, I would go in. I would be shot up with all the medication. Then he would give me a prescription to get me through the weekend. And keep in mind, I'm married to a law enforcement officer now. Um, and one Friday, I... I I got shot up. I had 10 minutes to get home. I always timed it very creatively. But I thought my prescription was very important that day. So I needed to go to the pharmacy. and I pick it up. To pick it up. For the weekend. And I passed out in the pharmacy. And my husband had to send his men to come get me. And um, I was not. And then I added alcohol on top of it. And so in in a period of six months, I weighed 90 pounds and I was almost dead. And... um, you know, my husband was newly married. He didn't ask for this. <laughs> and um, he was assigned to the governor. He was on the mm-hmm. governor's uh, security detail at that time. Um, he ended up being Governor Fordyce's security chief. And um, and so I went in for, um, we'll say, an assessment um, at a local uh, hospital there in Jackson. And I manipulated my way out of it. And they told me, Miss Rigby, you don't have a problem um, and then about two weeks later, it got so bad. Um, you know, thank goodness my husband had the people he could ask questions to, like the people at the Bureau of Narcotics. This mm. is what's going on with my wife. What do I do? Well, if you love her, get her some help. If not, go buy her a cemetery plot. She's going to be dead pretty quickly. And they could ask. I was not very creative. I went to one pharmacy. Now we have the PNP. You could yep. really check it back then. You just get printouts. That's right. But, um, and so I was fast-tracked under a court commitment to the state hospital at Whitfield, which is our state facility, Um, and that's where I needed to be. Um, I did not, I was probably in detox probably for about three weeks until I came to, and I had a great team there, and um, again, I was under a court commitment, but first of all, they thought I was a narc. You know, they didn't know why I was there. I mean, these are the other patients. <laughs> sure. But, um, and probably when I came to, I, I, I was like, oh, my God, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> How did I get here? You know, I was in a really bad blackout. And um, my counselor, Sandy, asked me to come to her office, and she said, um, you know, you can't leave. I was like, well, yes, I can. I'm calling my attorney. You can't keep me here against my will. And, you know, um, and she says, did you bring anything to treatment with you? And I said, yes. And she said, what did you bring? And I said, I brought my Bible. And she says, I want you to go up to your room, and I want you to put your Bible under your bed. And when you actually hit your knees, I want you to pray for acceptance and surrender. And when I did that, my life changed because it talks about a spiritual awakening in the big book, and that was my spiritual awakening. And when I did that, everything in my life changed. And I grew up in a Baptist church. I, you know, I'm 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 very Southern. I understand. And um, but I'd never hit my knees. Mm. And you know, in my my faith walk, that was how I survived as a child. Mm. You know, I was very I was at church on Wednesday and Sunday nights, mm-hmm. and that that was my survival. Mm-hmm everything that I was going through. But when I made that decision to 
turned my life into my will over the care of God as I understood him, my life changed. So were you guys inter- introduced to 12-step recovery in this facility yes. at Whitfield? Oh, yes. Okay, oh, yes. so that was a oh, part yes. of it too. Oh, yes. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a big part of it. And, um, you know, we start, look, we did have some extra things that, uh, the first lady would send food out there on the weekends enough for everybody. You know, it was just a way to support and give back. But I knew I wanted what my counselor had. Ooh. I knew it. Right. I wanted what my counselor had. I right. wanted it. And I never asked when my um, discharge day was. I never wanted to know. I wanted it to be based on my progress. And I was in treatment probably for almost six months. So you were ready. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Sounds like I was you were ready, ready. Ready. And I've never, you know, I've never not done what they asked me to do. You know, we ha- I had to make some we as a couple, a newly married couple had to make some healthy decisions and right then um my family was toxic for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my husband and I bought my mother's house when we got married and so we did not go back to the house that we lived in. We had our puppy and we got an apartment out near the hospital because that's where I felt safe. Wow. And um, we didn't have any furniture. We lived on an air mattress. And um, I was a really bad workaholic in my other life. And so that was a, uh, I had to put some things in place to stop that. And um, uh, I would work, you know, 18 hour days. And I was in retail and I was known as a, a fixer if your bottom line was, you know, I just did a little bit of this and that. You have lived nine lives. I really it's, so my mother says she would you really be, have she would be kidding me and and you know I've had medical change challenges in um, in recovery and you know it's just by God's grace I'm here and I'm here to do what He has called me to do and that's to help people on a day to day basis. So when did you know that? When did you through your recovery journey did you start to say? So you know, when, so when I got out of treatment, I started volunteering immediately. Where I volunteered at Saint Dominic's Behavioral Health North Campus. And that's actually where my mother went to treatment when I was 18, Um, but it was called Doctor's Hospital then. And um, there was a lady when my mother went to treatment by the name of Ruth Searcy, who was her counselor. And imagine when I walked through the doors to volunteer, who's still there? Of course she was. But Ruth Searcy. Yeah. And did she know you? Oh, yes, she did. Of course she did. Oh, yes, she did. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, we, you know, God just did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I started volunteering there. I went back to school to be an A&D counselor, and I stayed there for almost 10 years, you know. What was your role there? Um, I, well, I started out as a tech. I learned, and it was the greatest foundation, and I always tell people, if you're going to get a true foundation, mm-hmm. do it in a hospital because mm. you learn so much in a hospital setting, and, you know, like even as a tech, you know, you learn how to take vital signs and do these things and charting. And um, it was just, it was a very positive experience for me. And that's back when we could um, keep people for up to 28 days. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a great, great experience for me. Yeah. We've heard that a lot. I mean, just in my professional and personal experiences. You know, folks that start off as a tech somewhere, mm-hmm. whether it's a hospital or a treatment system or something, just the day in and day out of how to cultivate and be a part of an atmosphere of recovery in a treatment setting, which is different than recovery. Right. It's much different than recovery and how that kind of, it does one or two things. It either motivates you to 
Yeah. Do something more <laughs> in this field or oh, yeah. it motivates you to pivot a little bit, which is also great and a beautiful thing. But it's a unique part of our culture that sometimes we we're so inundated in it but so many people that are have a personal experience are working in this field and it colors again like I was mentioning sort of this atmosphere of change that I think people get to experience so you're a tech you're early in recovery you're in Mississippi you're early in your marriage Mm -hmm. which you know is a change process in and of itself right and from there, you become an alcohol and drug counselor in the state of Mississippi. Yes. And so I assume you started being a counselor there. Yes. And what yeah. happened after that? Where'd um, you go? I was just involved in community. You know, um, I was put on the state drug court advisory board. I believe in getting involved in your communities. Um, you know, after I left um, St. Dominic's, I went to Pine Grove Behavioral Health down in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. That. Okay. And I was there for quite some time. Is that how you met Chappie? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's how I met Chappie. Okay, you got connected. Yeah, Yeah. and, um, you know, it was just, it was a a special time there. And, and like, each each leap that I've taken has been very impactful in my life, very Mm. impactful. And when I started there, I started their alumni program. Really? Before alumni was hip, (laughs) before we had (laughs) T-Pass. And recovery care advocates yes. or peer recovery yes. sports yep. specialists and Before all that. Before we had all of that. So I would imagine that while at Pine Grove, you might have gotten connected to somebody whom we also love at Cumberland Heights named Eileen McRae. Eileen and Dr. John. Yes. I love the McRae's. Yeah. Yeah. They're great people. Special, special people. So Eileen, so there is a group of women, Eileen McRae, Eileen Warwick, Ruth Searcy, and Sister Paulinus Oaks. I call them affectionately the white-haired club, but then they referred to themselves as the blue-haired club. <laughs> and Catherine Turcott was part of that, um, who was a great influence. We all worked together. Um, we just did some amazing things in the state of Mississippi to help the sick and suffering and families. And Y'all really have. I mean— Oh, my gosh. Eileen has been such a mentor to me and— and she's an incredible woman. She's she loves full hearted, oh, you know, and with everything she has. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. Um, in fact, in a, in a in the most healthy way, I can just say, like it's an envious thing, right? As a as a younger person in the field, if you will, in terms of experience, like to look at you all and the community y'all have created over decades, yes, and say that's special, that's unique. How you can call on each other. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. To help people all across the Southeast, all across this country. One thing I wanted to tell you, one of my first observations about you um, that I want to make sure that I continue to step into as a person who works in this field is every time I'm at a conference, no matter what the conference is, most of the time I'm going to see you volunteering. Yes. Right? Whether you're on the program committee or maybe you might even be running the whole show, which I've been – Whatever it is, I always see you with a scanner at the very least. Yes, very least. Scanning somebody's CEUs, right? Answering questions, just being a part of it. And I think that that's a special thing and speaks to your character. I was also at the last year's conference when you got the volunteer awards presented by none other than Gary Fisher. Yes. And there was not a dry eye in the whole room. And so I just want to say, you know, from the middle of my heart, just job well done. Oh. You know? You know, it's about being a service. Yeah. And, you know, um, my, my both my parents volunteered quite a bit, um, so I get it honestly. Um, but when I went to Pine Grove, 
you know, I, I started volunteering because it was a different role, and then they moved me into development and, you know, to meet people. Do what? Were you still at Whitfield when you started volunteering at Pine Grove? No, 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 no. Okay, uh, so this had all changed, <laughs> yeah. and you just said, oh, I'm uh, going to yeah. volunteer. Right, and, you know, when they started assigning me to go to different conferences and everything— that is the best way to connect to people is volunteering. Maybe that, well, this is interesting. I'm just having this thought. Maybe the key to a successful career is to volunteer first. I think that's a great idea. It sure has been, you know, just from the outside looking in, Yes, a part of your journey almost at every stop. It is. Is just being a part of and just saying, look, I'm just here. And if God's going to show me a new door and opportunity, that's great. But yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, I even learned how to play golf to meet people. I'm not the best golfer in the world. My mother was a, what is it called? An A-scratch? Okay. A scratch golfer? Scratch golfer, that's yeah. right. My mother was that. She was good then. Oh, she very was very good. good. She went to Southern on a golf scholarship. Really? Mm-hmm. No kidding. Yeah. So talk to me. I, I When we were in Charleston last year, mm-hmm. and help me with the name of the conference, I'm sorry. It's the Leadership and Addiction Summit, powered by SEED. Which was the first one that we that you did last yes, year we, in Charleston because um, it transitioned. We, we transitioned from the Southeastern Eating Disorder Conference, right? Seed for short, um, to the Leadership and Addiction Summit because um, we came through COVID. Um, we just felt that we were going in a we were pivoting in a different direction, um, and it was very well received. Um, and you know, we were there in Charleston. We're going to be in Nashville this year. Shout out Nashville. Shout out Nashville. Come to the conference. When is the conference? Well, it's August the 18th and 19th. Here in Nashville. Nashville. Can you sign up today? Oh, yes, you can. Where? You can sign up at our website. It's the leadershipandaddictionsummit.com. Uh, they just flipped the domain yesterday, so you may have a little bit of a challenge, but it should be all populated by today. One of the things that I wanted to uh, just highlight about that event from last year in Charleston when I was there, my favorite part was um, meeting with and hearing this gentleman, and you're going to have to help me with his name, but he's associated with the Mississippi Highway Patrol. Because oh. something that's similar to us is the uh, West Alabama Narcotics Task Force saved my life and had to intervene, oh, right? That's Colonel Stephen Maxwell with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. That was in Charleston. Which a, yes. Which he, that's a division of the Department of Public Safety. And it was so refreshing because I think, especially over the last 15, 20 years, there seems to be pockets of a renaissance with law enforcement and their relationship with people who struggle with addiction and from a well-being perspective, mental health, or any kind of co-occurring disorder. And it's um, – I want to give Mississippi some credit, right? Because sometimes Mississippi doesn't get a good rap for some things, right? The state bird being the mosquito and all that kind of stuff, right? It's a beautiful place, and I love Mississippi. I'm a native <laughs> to Mississippi. But talk to us about your involvement, and, and the, it makes sense with your husband right. and his experience in law enforcement. But talk to me about those programs and the colonel because he – the way he talked about addiction was pretty unique. Well, we do a lot of things um, with the Bureau of Narcotics. One of the things that was um, we did in Mississippi back in 2012 was we created the Opioid and Heroin Summit. And we created it um, specifically with partnerships in mind, partnerships like uh, the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Mississippi Public Health Institute, the Mississippi Department of Mental Health, all those agencies that can truly come together and impact community. Um, And, you know, my husband, Jody, will tell you that um, he really didn't know what I did um, 
until he retired. And he was traveling some with me. He would hear me working with families. You know, I was put on a task force to help law enforcement when he was still on the patrol. And, you know, being a wife of a first responder, being um, a wife who's also an alcoholic and drug addict in recovery, I wanted to break the stigma because um, we need to be able to help as many people as possible. And if they can see people like us recover, if I can recover, anybody can recover. Um, but Colonel Maxwell has a very special gift of getting the point across in a very loving way. He wants to be able to, um, in their agency for that matter, they they help people up. You know, my husband will tell you he was used to putting people in jail mm. um, who struggled. Um, but with our relationships that we have formed with them through different conferences and things like that to bring awareness, they have learned that they can help people. Mm. And, and, and Colonel Maxwell will tell you that. Mm. Um, you know, we work together diligently to be able to access resources for people to get care, whether they have resources or not. You know, a couple of things are interesting about that. You started this summit for heroin and opioids in mm -hmm. 2012. Yes. Which was the begin, well, yeah. kind of the first start of right. before the Oxycontin was prevalent. Right. You know, and heroin came right behind that in our communities, especially in the Southeast. But prescriptions per, you know, uh, uh, average prescriptions per, per 100 persons in our communities was out the roof, right? right. This is when... This is a little bit before the PMP too, right? right? It was yes. just being put together it was just being in terms put together. of. So, for those that are listening, just in terms of how we um, kind of codify or understand how many prescriptions each individual is having before this system, right? It was individualized as a function of your provider and your pharmacy, right. so that these you wouldn't know that me, for an example, had ten prescriptions spread out across five providers, and right. now we have that key just to help better help people. Um, what I loved about – so there's an observation. Y'all were on the front end of a lot of that work. And the thing that I loved hearing about from the colonel is is how to create change, his change process that he was talking about. Oh, right? in Between, his organization. Yeah. Sheriff by sheriff, community by community because you're right. I mean if you're not touched by – well, let me say this. If you're not touched by recovery because I think almost everybody's touched by addiction, you, you have a – we all carry – Assumptions. I certainly did before I myself got in recovery about what addiction's like, who experiences it, what hope looks like. So what I really loved is his passion about building relationships with the leaders, the law enforcement leaders right. across the state and how that's driven change. But it's not been linear. Mm -mm. It's been up and it's down. It's up and down. Yeah. Um, you know, he he created a culture within his organization about wellness. He wanted his agents to be able to access care no matter what and to be able to create a true wellness program. When people think about wellness, you know, they're thinking about physical activity, you know, personal trainers, you know, nutrition. Um, he takes it a step further and does mental health wellness because you have to remember these people um, are working sometimes undercover. They're, they're running into danger. They're running into danger. And so he he is he set up a whole program where they can call somebody confidentially confidentially and and he doesn't have to know about it. He created a safe space for wellness. Right. And um and it's really called on um throughout our state. Um 
uh, my husband and I co-founded an organization called First Responders of Mississippi um, with some great people about six years ago. Um, and we were um, in Columbia, Mississippi um, with the police chief there. And he's created a, a, a culture there within his own organization for wellness. He wants to keep his men and women well and whole. And, you know, that's actually what recovery teaches us, to be well and whole. And so I just like the the things that they've created um, change within their own organizations, and it's catching on. Right. It's catching on. Yeah, and that's the, what I love. When the colonel was talking about it, it was almost performance-based. Yes. In the sense of like, hey, this is the right thing to do to invest in people in terms of their mental health. Right. And that's what we're all discovering, and that's what recovery teaches right. you, right, about the link between – you know, physical and, and and mental health. But I loved how he, it's like, that's a net positive just to help people and make sure they're safe. But it's also a positive because they're going to be a better version of themselves at home and also in the force, yeah. right? Whether that's a part of being a highway patrolman oh, yeah. or a sheriff or whatever you're doing. And I really loved that. that. I thought that was really special and unique. How has this experience over the last 15 some odd years with this work with law enforcement specifically impacted families and family recovery in the state of Mississippi from your perspective? I think it's made huge changes. It's huge. Um, Where families know that they can get help. They Mm. know that they can get in recovery Mm. and they know that they can heal. Yeah. You know, I think you have to create a safe space. You have to create a place for hope and healing. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, for so long, we have not been able to t- talk publicly about, you know, you know, people are talking more about it. You know, we do recover, you know, hashtag we do recover, recovery out loud. And I think the more people that share their experience, strength and hope in their journey, no matter what their journey is, um, you know, will allow people to 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 get into recovery one way, changed. shape or form. Yeah. Mississippi has also done really good work by way of collegiate recovery. Oh yes, you know yes. Eileen's been involved in yes. that, and 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 Nell Cohen. Yeah, now they're at Auburn, but yeah. but uh, she was a great champion of that. And our friend Blake Schneider, yeah. who's now at Kennesaw yeah. State University, supporting their collegiate recovery program. And so it's been interesting to see uh, some of our public universities in the region, like kind of be transformed right. by that. I think that college up in Starville, is it? I think they have a collegiate recovery. They sure do. Yeah, they do. Mississippi State, the Bulldogs, absolutely. One of the things, and I think you know this about me, but I was a student in the Texas Tech University Mm -hmm. Collegiate Recovery Program. And, you know, my great friend Nico Dorn and I, you know, he was a high school. Look at old Nico soaring right now. Soaring, right? Isn't it incredible? Him and Bobby Ferguson and and what he's been able to build uh, in Austin has been – just as his friend, I couldn't be more proud because we got sober together. He's a good man He's and a, a great good man. daddy. He's a great dad. They have a lot of babies right now. Yes, they do. <laughs> so I tell him over and over again, hey, take a nap. Yeah. You know, take care of yourself. <laughs> give yourself a break, you know, because he's he's so much, he's so focused on family and he's so focused on making sure that Alpha 180, Alpha Behavioral Health, as, as, yeah. as they've just rebranded, yeah. um, is doing good work out of Austin, Texas. But one of the things that's really unique, and it reminds me of your first responders programs, is the that collegiate recovery programs change the culture of the universities that they're in. So here's what I mean. When I showed up to Texas Tech, which I was like, what am I doing here? Right? It's flat. 
all the trees are planted by humans, which begs the question <laughs> where all the squirrels come from. Like it's, it's, but it's a beautiful city out there in West Texas and, and their cleat recovery program founded, well, not founded, but, um, at the time was being ran by Dr. Kitty Harris, whom I think, you know, Yes. you know, you show up and there's 120 kids in recovery in this beautiful, you know, 15,000 square foot, some odd building right across from the president's office. And you're thinking, what's going on here? And what I loved mostly about that program is how just by way of those students being empowered to be on campus, they're really transforming lives in, indirectly. So here's an example. All those kids are going into classes and meeting people and studying with them and sharing about their lives. And it could be a mathematics class. It could be an engineering class. Maybe it's a therapy class or a psychology class, right? And they're meeting someone like you. And, and you're sharing a little bit about, hey, I'm in recovery and I used to use drugs and alcohol every day that ends in Y, you know, yeah. <laughs> and this 19 year old or 20 year old saying, really, tell me about that. And it's those little things that are hard to measure, right? that are having a broad impact in that community. And I've seen Mississippi State change in how they celebrate recovery. Like if you just look at some social media stuff that's tagged with the university or the president right. coming down to an event, like that's unique. Yes. And that's a part of what you're talking about with families and with first responders and folks more than we've ever had access to before saying, hey, recovery is possible. And how do we, like, I love what the colonel talk, and you talk about, how do we bring people up instead of lock them away? Yes. It's changing our relationship to that because, you know, you and I, if we wouldn't have given those, oppor- I mean, if we oh, wouldn't yeah. have been given those opportunities as two examples of recovery. We wouldn't have been able to been, be here, which is right. really unique. So that's a beautiful thing. So tell us about your new opportunity for those that don't know. You're now with the J Flowers Institute. Yes, I um, I made that transition in February uh, to J Flowers Health Institute, and I work with Dr. James Flowers and Robin Mooney. That's uh, exciting. They both are co-founders of J Flowers Health Institute, and they've been open for about six years. It's just extraordinary the work that we're able to do at J Flowers Health Institute. And I've been a referral source there, just like I'm a referral source here, um, getting people to the right level of care um, and getting the help that they truly need. You know, with J Flowers Health, I've just seen miracles happen in different ways. You know, we have people that have a lot of medical issues right. um, that may be cross-addicted or they have... Um, behavioral health issues that they really can't put their finger on. They've just been going to provider after provider. And with J Flowers Health being right there in the the hub of the Texas medical community, we're able to really partner with some incredible providers there that are um, on our provider network, if you will. Yeah, my perspective of J Flowers is that they dive deep. Oh, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Really? Yeah, and we I mean, call it a living MRI. That's what Dr. Flowers refers to it as, a living MRI, and it's absolutely a living MRI. So what does that mean for a patient generally? Um, that looks like, you know, they, it depends on what they're struggling with. You know, we, may, we, we have seen miracles in many different ways. Um, we've been able to help people who did not know that they had a tumor on their um, pituitary gland, you know, and they were acting funny. We really take a deep dive from head to toe and all in between. Right. And it's a process, you know. One of the we can take care of uh, keep people that are uh, that need very high acuity levels of care in a private sector. You know, they they don't have to have that institution feel. 
you know, um, you know, we love them back to health is what I like to say. Yeah, like a systems approach to wellness. It is. Right. And it's really unlike anything, you know, I really encourage people to come experience with us, you know, come and mm. do a tour and they can contact me about that and meet with our team because, um, you know, I, I've worked with many, many different families and some of the families that I've been able to send, send there have um, truly been a... And, they don't have to necessarily have a substance abuse problem. so oh, I didn't can, know that. They do not have to have a substance abuse problem to, to come to us. We, I mean, they can have complex medical issues. Um, they can have complex behavioral health issues. They can have eating disorders. They can have sex addiction. Um, and, you know, something is just not making this make sense. And so, you know, with mm. our treatment team that we have available, we can really put together a, a very... Um, individualized treatment plan um, for that individual. And it may be that they need to stabilize first and then we start the um, um, the evaluation piece. But um, we're right there on the campus. I call it of the Houstonian Resort there in Houston. And then uh, our offices are literally, you know, probably a thousand feet. Breaking down silos yeah. between providers. Yeah. Y'all are diving deep, breaking down those silos. I didn't know that it was... It could be medical. It, it could can be, be. Yeah, yeah. It can be psych primary. It can be addiction primary. Yeah, that's incredible. That's the beauty of it. And, yeah, you know, exactly. Even um, like I, we had a dear friend that was diagnosed with cancer mm. um, several years ago, and he was just getting the runaround. And I said, and I called Doctor Flowers. I said, you know, I have this friend. I said, can we fast track him into MD Anderson's? Yes, you know, uh, working with first responders and their families that need to be fast tracked. You know, he's been able to help us fast track into MD Anderson's and other providers in that area. So, you know, it's all about community, and they certainly uh, have a passion for helping community there. That's great. We're really glad that you're with them. Yeah, it's exciting. I am too. I'm where I'm supposed to be. That's exactly right. So, from Ruth Ann Wrigley's perspective, what's our challenge today? as addiction treatment providers? It's still breaking, breaking the stigma. You think? It is breaking the stigma and access to care. You know, a lot of families um, do not realize that um, there's a lot of resources available, that they don't necessarily have to have insurance or, or money to be able to pay for treatment, that they could probably um, uh, meet criteria for a grant opportunity, and it's really just connecting the people to those resources. And people tell me all the time, Ruthanne, how do you know so many people? And I'm like, it's what I'm supposed to do. You need to know the resources that are in your state and 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 things. I'll give you an example. So uh, a friend of mine who's in the program, and I've known her for probably 15 years now, she texts me, you know, every now and then, my niece is in trouble, you know, what do we need? And they, they live up out north, uh, out west, out west. Um, and, you know, she doesn't, she has Medicaid and and all this. And, right. Um, and so I send her, you know, all the resources that I can come up with about mobile crisis teams. You know, mobile crisis teams have really changed the trajectory of our care in each state. Um, and, you know, I connected her to those people and, and her niece is actually going to treatment today um, at the retreat. Great. So, you know, that's just connecting people. Right. Um, but I'm a, I'm a very firm person who believes in advocacy. And if I can't advocate for those that are sick and suffering, then I can't do anything. 
And it's very important to get to know the people at your Department of Mental Health, at your mm-hmm. Department of Health. You know, COVID helped us really forge that gap with relationships. Um, you know, mobile crisis teams, you know, in the state of Mississippi, and I'm sure in the state of Tennessee, you can access a mobile crisis team at any given time, and they will come to where you are. It's a team. And if that person is a danger to themselves or others, they're going to make sure that they get to the right level of care. And so, you know, those are things that people that have changed. Right. Those have changed that we've been trying to change the trajectory on. And and also, you know, um, um, making a three-digit suicide hotline number. You know, we've we've all worked diligently on that, and that's imperative. Right. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. I I there's families that are struggling all over this country. Absolutely, tens of thousands of them. Yes, to find answers. You know, it might be what is addiction. It might be I didn't even know recovery existed. What does that even look like? Um, and then not to mention sort of sifting through the web of the 17,000 approximately providers that are in the United States today yes. for addiction primary, that is. How do you make those treatment decisions? And I I am, um, I don't have a good answer, but I know that your suggestion of creating relationships in a community is probably a good first step Yep. And in, in terms of being able to make informed treatment decisions because Google's not always the best gatekeeper Oh, no. No, 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 no. Quality care. No, it's not. You know, and creating those connections with folks who are boots on the ground, working with people day in and day out. They're the warriors. They're the warriors. And they're the folks. And, but it's hard because a family doesn't know. I mean, they're turning, I mean, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine in some ways, but, you know, they're turning to the tools they only know that they have access to. So it might be, um, you know, a pastor at a church. And most likely those individuals are connected to whoever those providers are. Because we don't know. We don't, right. we don't, we're not, like you mentioned earlier, we're not familiar with treatment centers. I but, meet people all the time that are here in Nashville and they're like, you work for Cumberland Heights? And I'm like, yeah, we had no idea until two years ago that Cumberland Heights was here. Right. You know? Right. And so, and that's, that's community impact. And, right. and you know, it starts with community and it starts with being, um, you know, I'm very, I'm a member of Broadmoor Baptist Church in Madison, Mississippi. Um, I volunteer out of the Center for Hope and Healing. Um, when I'm not traveling, I, I work out of the church's counseling center, and and they know that mm-hmm. I can be a resource to help families that are struggling. And, you know, it's what we do. And, you know, be that resource person right. in your community. And I challenge people that are listening to this to be that person. You know, stand up and do something about it instead of talking about it. Get into action and get to know those people because you will save a life doing that. Mm. You know, you will save a life. I, I I talked to so many families, and there was a um, a situation this week, and I was working with this family, and and she said, "Well, people just told me that you know they have to have the want to. They have to have the want to, Ruthann. Have to. They have to. I was like, no, they don't." Right. And, you know, I'm 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 changing that messaging because um I don't give up on people. I will go to war to fight for somebody to get the help that they need. Right. And um, you know, her son is safe today because she listened to me and she followed direction. Right. You know, even if it meant that her son would be arrested. Right. She at least knows where he is. Right. And, you know, we've had to do that within our own family with our my nephews. 
you know, I, I don't play that game. I'm not going to get you out of jail, but I'm going to make <laughs> damn sure you stay in jail until you're really ready, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, you know, sure. um, you know, I'm blessed that I have several nephews that are in recovery that have no made kidding. that decision. But, you know, I threatened them with their life that they will never come back to the state of Mississippi. And, you know. Some, Good for them. It's it's in there and it works for them. Right. You know. And having you as a part of the family or the team, the family team, right, helped adjust that system. It's I, really hard when it's in your own family. It's so hard when it's on your own when you're trying to help people within your own family. And you're talking to your sister about her kids, oh, right? Yeah. And and, 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 and right. your brother. And so right. you have to let somebody else run mm. that point. That's a good suggestion too. You have to let somebody else run the point. Whether it's the Gary Fishers of the world or the Steve Lees of the world, right, or the Deborah Jays of the world, right, let somebody else run point within your own family. You can, as an individual in recovery in your family system, you can be a resource, you can be a part of change, but you probably should not be the primary interventionist. Oh, this is true. This is <laughs> this is kind of what you're alluding this, to. This is true. Absolutely, right? you don't need yeah. to be the case manager of. Mm. This or that person's reach out to a Ruth Ann like you're talking about or a Steve Lee or a Gary Fisher and help them help your family. And oh, by the way, they'll have large – because they're outside of the system. They'll have more meaningful change. Yeah. Or the Eileen McRae's of the world. Shout out Eileen. So I I really love your challenge because I think I need to hear it myself, which is, hey, be that community advocate, right? Stop – let's stop talking about it and let's start being about it. You know, whether that's connecting with recovery navigators, which are peer recovery sport specialists in Tennessee, or connecting with your local church and just introducing yourself, right? Right. Like, hey, I'm not trying to be large and in charge. I just want you to know that I'm a part of your congregation and this is some of my experience. Well, and be be a part of activities that are in your own community that are not necessarily recovery related, Hmm. where you can start planting those seeds, Hmm. you know? It's just, you know, being a part of the Rotary Club. I mean, that's a huge organization that makes an impact. And it's just really tapping into those um, community partners that can help open their eyes to what you potentially do, but what they do also. Yeah. It reminds me of our symbols in recovery. No matter the 12-step program that you participate in, they usually some say the larger your base right? The yeah. base or foundation of your program, the higher point of freedom you're going to experience. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, you know, a part of your base is community. And a part of your base is beyond the meetings that you go to, too. This is an interesting dynamic. Like, you know, recovery can exist. Recovery exists far beyond just recovery activities. Oh, yeah. Is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Right? It exists in your grocery store. It exists in the Rotary Club. It exists at your HOA board meetings, right? Well, thank it, God I don't have one of those. <laughs> but other people do. <laughs> but 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 you're exactly right. Being a part of those communities will color your life in a way that you probably don't expect and help in some ways you might hope to be there for somebody that might be sick and well, suffering. Well, and you truly— and that's what it's about. You know, in recovery, talk we talk about the more you put in, the more you will get out of it. And that, that's the same for for community. The more you put into your community, the more you will receive. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer you reap what you sow. Thank you for being an example of that. I just, I have this mental image related to this conversation about you scanning CEUs. 
<laughs> and all the recovering colleagues that we have that are the, yeah. that are at these events that shout out to them that we should be we should never have a problem with volunteers at these events, right? And sometimes we do. We should have waiting lists for volunteers. Right. Waiting lists. Right. You know, when you're thinking about truly being down at the Starbucks and talking Mm. to two or three people, think about the people that you can scan into a session and you meet them one-on-one. Right. You know, even when, you know, when we had teams working for me, I, I challenged my team to go into the sessions and meet the people. Where are you going to meet people? You're going to meet them in the sessions. That's where I met Deborah J. Really? Who's a dear friend of mine now. Of course. That's Mara, That's where I met um, Rebecca Cooper. You know, she's retired now. But, I mean, I met amazing people that yeah. are my dear friends now because I volunteered. Right. And because you showed up to the sessions too, which is sort of another discussion, but go and be a part of, right? And always learn, always be willing to learn. You know, what what does John McAndrews, one of his songs says, we're always learning. You always are learning. We love John McAndrew. We're certainly glad he's here. Well, Ruthann, thank you for being here. It's great to see you at Cumberland Heights in Nashville. I apologize for all the pollen. We're exploding with spring right now. Yeah, it's killing me. It's, it's, it's been tough for me too, but we're so glad that you came to visit. Maybe next time you're here, bring Eileen McRae. We need to see I'll her. I'll load her up in the car. Load her up and bring her back up here. We need to see her. I hear she's uh, actually doing some volunteer with Pine Grove, which yeah, is great. Yeah, she is. I, we, we should get reconnected with her, but thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Well, and if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can certainly go to our website, First Responders of Mississippi. Uh, dot com or they can go to jflowershealthinstitute.com. Incredible. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.